Welcome to the Hutchmoot Podcast, brought to you by the Rabbit Room Podcast Network. If you're wondering what in the world a Hutchmoot is, you are not alone. Let me give you the short version. Hutchmoot is an annual arts conference hosted by the Rabbit Room in which we gather people together around art, music, story, and faith. If you want the long version, check out the website at hutchmoot.com, where all of your questions, or at least some of them, will be answered. Only a very few novels come together in such a way as to perfectly capture the aspects of language, faith, adventure, beauty, and mystery that we love so much here in the Rabbit Room. And Leif Enger is the rare author who has written more than one of them. Whether it's the miraculous tale of Peace Like a River, the conversational grace of So Brave, Young, and Handsome, or the high-flying kites of Virgil Wander, Leif is a teller of the kind of tales that we love to love. Here, in his 2013 Hutchmoot Address, he reminds us that we're all driven by a holy wind, and we're at our best when we relax into its mystery and sail a course full and by. So I hope it's okay if I speak, if I speak simply. Um, simple is sort of my only option. But Pete asked me to talk about story and storytelling, which is an easy one for me. I love talking about stories and their worth in the culture and their worth to me. I would say after sailing, it's my favorite topic. I would only rather talk about sailing, and maybe I'll squeeze a little sailing in tonight if we have enough time. But I like to talk about story because the truth is that story and the process of storytelling is, is the only apologetic by which I can even begin to comprehend the world. I've never been able to understand anything outside the context of a story. So I'll start with a cheerful confession, which is that I can read theology, but it doesn't stick. It doesn't stick. I wish it stuck because then I could converse with fluency in a room full of adult Christians, such as all of you, uh, or if you'd rather, such as you all. (laughs) I could go on public radio and... uh, throw around allusions to Kierkegaard, uh, you know, Thomas More, John Knox, uh, iron sharpening iron, yeah, the old parry and thrust. Uh, And yet, my attempts to read theology have really come to nothing, or they've come to something that really looks like nothing. Um, The more books of theology I read, the more discussions and debates and diatribes and doctrinal treatises, the more I have always found myself back in 10th grade, specifically in plane and solid geometry. Uh, Anybody else take plane and solid geometry? Okay. I was one of the smart kids, so they made me take plane and solid geometry, and I did try pretty hard. I went in and I, I really gave it my best shot because, look, my smart kid status was on the line. I needed to understand plane and solid geometry, so I really worked at it. And I never got it. I never understood it. I couldn't make it work. I aimed my mind right at it, and I couldn't do it. And it wasn't one of those things where you're going along fine, and then there's an advanced concept, and it trips you up. No. I went in, first day of class. After 15 minutes, I lost the plot. I never found it again. (laughs) So it turned out I was not actually one of the smart kids, which was embarrassing. But it was also kind of liberating because it was a relief to start to understand that even if I'd been able to go up to the blackboard and solve the 
proofs and the equations that they wouldn't have helped me roll out of bed in the morning. I'm really happy for the chemistry of water and yeast, but I'm just a child and I want the cinnamon roll. I just want the cinnamon roll. Now, in my defense, because this is a Lewis-centric group, I will say that I got through mere Christianity and the problem of pain and the great divorce, good old Uncle Screwtape, and a bunch of others by a lineup of fairly crisp thinkers whose names I think you would know. I read Mere Christianity actually several times. And a great book, a, a great book. It was great to me while I was reading it. It's been important to many thousands of us. I was so serious about it, I took notes throughout on a yellow legal pad. I planned to keep the notes forever. I planned to put them in a place I would never lose them. And anytime I hit a patch of spiritual angst or inquiry, I would know where to find those notes so I would have the answer. And of course, I lost the notes right away. Um, Robin and I moved out of our basement apartment, and I either threw them in the trash or they blew out of the back of my dad's red Ford pickup truck on our way to southern Minnesota along with a box of English papers I also planned to keep forever. And the book, the book, Mere Christianity, I went back and read it again two years ago. And it was still great. Uh, and I still can't remember any of it. Um, <laughs> I, remember, uh, I remember a tone of... Uh, very conversational tone for theology. And really entertaining. Which must have been pretty revolutionary in the early 1940s when he wrote it. For a book of exegetical thought. Um, and I do remember that its opening section was titled Right and Wrong as a clue to the meaning of the universe, which is a tremendously great title for a, for a book, or for part of a book, because it's just bold and it's out there, and it's also, I think, Lewis kind of winking, kind of goosing the solemn, which he was good at. But that's it. That's all I've got. I don't remember any of the rest of it. What I do remember when it comes to Lewis, uh, in absolute full color and surround, is Narnia. And this is my Narnia experience. I was 13 years old. I came home from school one day. Been a rotten day. When you're 13, there are a lot of rotten days. I think this is universal. My mom was taking bread out of the oven. I got off the bus. I went in. The, ugh, the house smelled like bread. Here's how terrible my life was. Two or three days a week, I'd walk into the house after school, and it would smell like fresh bread. <laughs> so I was eating some bread with some butter and probably some North Dakota honey. And I was telling mom about my day and who didn't like me and who didn't appreciate me, who was mean to me. And she was listening patiently and then all of a sudden she got up and, uh, and left and went into her bedroom and I heard her rummaging around in the closet. And she came back and she handed me this little, this little cube of books, this little cube of literature. It was the box set. It was the British import. I know you've seen these. Uh, beautifully produced little paperback books. I had never heard of Narnia. Um, it was not yet a movie destination. Um, I didn't know anything about it. But this was easily and instantly the most exotic thing I had ever owned, this little case of books. It was compact. It was heavy in my hands. It felt like wisdom would feel if you put wisdom in your hands picture of a lion on the box. You remember this? Did anybody else have this set of books? 
It felt new and ancient at the same time. Before I took the books out and opened them, I thought they might be written in runes. I mean, it was just, it just seemed ancient. And I said, what are these? And mom said, these are stories by a master writer. And I did know the name C.S. Lewis because I'd seen the name on other books on my mom's bookshelf, books with much less whimsical titles. And I knew he had to be a heavyweight because on that same bookshelf there were, there were books by Spurgeon and Dake and uh, Francis Schaeffer. I love the Francis Schaeffer book. I don't remember which one it was, but you remember Francis? On the back of the book, there's a picture of him, and he looks like this sort of elfin philosopher. <laughs> and he looks like he's incredibly happy and satisfied because he's finally solved everything. <laughs> so I was happy to get the books, and I was also a little spooked. Mom said, look, I've had these a long time. I bought them, I bought them for you years ago. But... Uh, it was too soon. I wasn't sure you were ready for him. They've been up in my closet all this time waiting, and this doesn't mean anything to you, but if you knew my mom, you would understand. Here's a woman who cannot abide suspense in any form. If she, if she happens on a birthday present and your birthday isn't for two months, you're getting the present now because she wants to see your joy and pleasure and, and, and hear your appreciation right then. So I knew that this was sort of a big deal, and then she said... I think now you're ready for him. Well, a chill did not travel up and down my spine at that moment, but you know, it really ought to have. It really ought to have. It sort of does now, because as I think about it, receiving those books, even though they are kind of considered young adult books, right? They're kind of considered easy reading. What it felt like to me was that I was being handed the car keys or permission to use the rowboat, or something terribly adult. I felt like I was transitioning into adulthood because she had given me these ancient-looking volumes. And actually, this is, this is more accurate. This is more what it was like. It was like a scene that I came across less than a week later when I was well into one of the books. Some of you will remember this. There's a kid in one of the Narnia books. He's royalty, but he's just a regular kid. And he's got this teacher. And the teacher is eccentric, and he's old, and he's cool, and he's got all kinds of strange knowledge in his head. And over the years, he's been imparting to this royal child all these fantastical tales, all these mythologies, stories about wild centaurs and elves and strange beings in the woods, um, and a powerful lion who can build worlds or tear down cities with the sound of his roar. He's been telling this, this impressionable kid all of this mythology. And then there's a moment when the old tutor takes the kid out in the middle of the night and he takes him up to the battlements and he says, essentially, listen to me, I'm going to tell you something big. All the old stories are true. And I still get chills thinking about that scene. It still does it to me every time. And I feel a little bit like that's what happened when Mom gave me those books. And look, there is a lot of water under the bridge. 
since I was 13. Uh, since then, uh, Robin and I have spent our lives in, in churches with all the pleasure and friendship and hardship and hot dish that entails. <laughs> We've made our best friends in churches. We've heard a lot of useful teaching. And I can even say without irony that I love hot dish, you know, uh, the tater tot kind. I don't know if you do that in Nashville. But if you spend your life in churches, you are going to endure, by which I mean you're going to fall into and sort of turn around in and then with any luck you're going to kick your way out of periods of legalism, fundamentalism, activism, passive aggression, positive confession, glossolalia, bacchanalia. Youth groups, growth groups, dementedly intense groups. There's no bloody end. It's no wonder people come and go. They don't lose faith so much as just get worn out. However, however, through all the detours and the culture wars and the raging weariness and the occasional periods of 90-proof BS, through all of this, this simple idea has been a pillar of fire for me, and that is that all the old stories are true. The star in the east, the slaughter of innocence, the foretold resurrection, fratricide, patricide, pillar of salt. Everybody in the world wiped out except those who caught a ride with Noah, the famous boat builder and vintner. These stories have a hallmark. They have this identifier for me, and it's their, their just wild, sort of angular craziness, their refusal to sit down and be nice. They're just full of elbows and energy, and they blaze a trail for me, the old stories. They set up a paradigm of crime and punishment, and then they turn the paradigm on its ear, they say that we're strongest in our weakness, that the meek inherit that we gain by losing all these holy inversions. They make no sense, and they totally make the sale. Some things are too beautiful not to be true. So that is not a very well-reasoned apologetic. I don't think it's going to get me far with the Apostle Paul. But it did lay a foundation for my own current understanding of faith and of work and of reasonable worship. Did I say current, my current understanding? That's, that's my disclaimer. Another confession is that whenever I think, hey, I'm kind of on to something, about a month later I realize I was on to some bad comedy. If the old stories are true, and that's my apologetic, that's what I'm staking it on, then I should talk just a little, which is better than a lot, about the bearing it has on work. Because I think we're all here because we're doing work, because we love the world and the work we get to do in it. We like to make things, stories and lines and paragraphs and pages and songs and choruses and, and uh, high-quality smoking pipes. Um, <laughs> order from chaos. Uh, with any luck, a little bread, a few pints of stout. What the old stories provide, beyond the considerable bargain of redemption, 
is a way of looking at our work and our responsibility to it. The old mariners had their cosmologies, their reliable stars that they used to navigate through the oceans. And being invited here to Hutchmoot gave me sort of an excuse to figure out my own um, little constellation, which is roughly triangular. And I will admit up front that I don't always remember to look up. Sometimes I forget to look up for months at a time. But when I do, these are the bright spots. First is gratitude. I have to start with this because I had a crash course in gratitude over the summer, a little, little seminar. Uh, what happened, I got real sick real fast. Uh, this was in March. We had a big snowstorm, and afterwards I went up on the roof to shovel it off. Um, you know, heavy lifting, but nothing I wasn't used to. And then as a reward for the work, I, I treated myself to a nice long cross-country ski, and I felt great until I got home. And I couldn't stop shaking. I was just, I was shaking. It's like an aftershock. I was, I was shaking. I couldn't, couldn't stop. Robin covered me in quilts, made me some cocoa. We laughed about it. We joked about it. Didn't take it too seriously. I figured I had a cold, you know. How inconvenient. Uh, this, is, this is still so fresh, I don't love talking about it. So I'm just going to give you the high points. First, the, the whites of my eyes turned a deep, dark, beautiful burgundy. Um, not a little bloodshot. I'm talking about Cabernet. Uh, a beautiful color. <laughs> Second is my fever spiked so high that I saw blue flames rippling around the circle of my brain pan every time I closed my eyes, which sounds like a metaphor, but no, I'm being totally honest. When I closed my eyes, I, I, all I could see was blue fire. And third, the extra pounds that I had fell off, followed by a whole lot of pounds that were not extra. Um, when I, when I moved, especially going up and down stairs, my, my bones skidded around like dominoes in a box. I could actually hear them. Um, friends would come to the hospital and, and look at my eyes and look at my bones and forget what they came to say. It was very strange. Don Quixote showed up and moved into the mirror. <laughs> not, everyone, not everyone was happy to see him. The end of this story is that a, a brilliant uh, specialist figured out what was wrong or, or close enough. He narrowed it down to either an obscure meningitis uh, or a, a black mold poisoning from a renovation project I was working on. And luckily, the treatment for both of those things is the same. It's a, it's a high-test medication called voriconazole that you take for months and months. I'm closing in on gratitude here. When I started to get well and be able to, to think coherently again, this is what happened. The world looked so good. I was so surprised that I'd been able to stay. I was so happy just to be here. And it was like my eyesight, my physical eyesight was affected. All the colors were suddenly so bright that I had to protect myself with sunglasses. Um, things just hit so hard. It took nothing to make me laugh or cry. Um, I, I wept openly during an episode of The Deadliest Catch. Hey, sometimes it's kind of sad. <laughs> and people, man, I'll tell you what, suddenly I just liked everybody. I've always kind of liked people. But I liked er not just the usual suspects, I liked everybody. Now, of course, you can't just stand 
blinking back tears for the rest of your life. I've noticed that I'm back to not being really thrilled with politicians, for example. Um, but I really hope that part of that, part of that just shock of gratitude that I had is going to be permanent. I'm really trying to make it be permanent. Because mostly what gratitude gives you is a light heart. And we live in anxious times. And anxious times need lighthearted people. And of course we need the other kind. I know that. God bless our weary Puritans. Uh, God bless our sweaty prophets. Uh, but what I need right now, I find, is a light heart. Because without it, I couldn't gin up the strength for the next star in the constellation, which is persistence, which you can also call discipline if you want to, though in my case that would be the wrong word. Uh, discipline connotes clarity of mind, neatness of mind, uh, a sense of purpose. I want discipline. I asked for discipline, but so far I've received only persistence. Most of the time that's enough. If you're steeped, if you're steeped in the old stories, you already have a built-in appreciation for persistence because it's there in story after story. Abraham, you know, hanging in there, an old guy now, still waiting for the family to show up. That's persistence. Or Noah, kind of my favorite. Um, there's the guy to think about if, you know, if writing a novel starts to look like a big job. What you can't help but notice is that persistence in most of these stories plays a way bigger role than zeal, let's say, or passion. Passion's exciting, you know, always a, always a hot property, I think. Passion, zeal. Churches advertise it on billboards, you know, come join us, we're, we're super passionate. And it sure has its place in, in the creative arts. I love these stories about... The, Writers who disappear into a garret for, you know, three days or four days and they come out with a masterpiece just reeking of smoke and, and, uh, and whiskey and whatnot and, and they've got their masterpiece clutched in there. Sign me up for some of that. I would love that. Uh, Stevenson wrote Jekyll and Hyde that way, a story that I think circled the globe in a matter of months and changed the way people view good and evil. I mean, there's a story that's done its work in the world, a result of passion. But I think what's easy to lose sight of, at least for me, is, is that that story never would have landed on Stevenson if it hadn't been for his existing persistence. By then he was 36 years old. By then he had written a few novels, including Treasure Island, one of the all-time greats. He'd written uh, volumes of short stories. He'd written some journalism, a few books of journalism. He'd done his million words. He'd done his practice. He was ready for passion to light on him, and indeed it did. I love this about Stevenson. He wrote, he wrote when he was well, but most of the time, you know, Stevenson was sick. He wrote sitting up in bed, coughing his lungs into a metal basin, and whenever he wasn't coughing them up, he would, he would write prose. Passion without persistence doesn't get you very far, I suspect. This might be one of those natural laws. Um, in work, in marriage, absolutely in church. Persistence, on the other hand, is the landing strip for the muse. Because we don't know when she's up there overhead. Flying around, the muse, looking down, looking for a place to land. She needs a strip, she needs an open ground. 
I don't know exactly how this works, inspiration. I only know that I never write anything good if I'm not already writing. The last star in this constellation is delight. Because at the bottom, that is all I'm doing this for. I'm not doing it to win souls. I'm not doing it to encourage anybody or even to be a good steward of what I have been given. If any of those things happen, fantastic. I'm glad of it. It's not, not what I'm doing it for. Only one motive ever produced for me, and that was the search for delight. Fortunately, a lot of things are delightful. Delight's built into everything. I ran into a really great chat on the Rabbit Room site uh, a couple of weeks ago. I loved this one. It was about sadness, the role of sadness in novels. Who's responsible for that conversation? Anybody here write that? Oh, it was, it was terrific. Um, for the record... Um, <laughs> oh, <laughs> For, for the record, uh, that, was, that was really cool. Cormac McCarthy came up a few times. I read The Road. I felt totally, weirdly exalted reading The Road. Saddest book I've ever read. Um, and yet, I felt like I was reading the work of a man who was doing what he was meant to be doing at that time. It's a, the same feeling that I get when I listen to certain old blues artists or to those, those kind of loose-jointed chords of the Rolling Stones or, or Bonnie Raitt's Luck of the Draw album. It's like this wrenching sadness that makes me want to dance. I, I can't explain it, but it's delight. Delight lives there too. Delight pro crops up in strange places and it's always worth looking for. This is the way I think about it. At our farm in Minnesota, we have a lot of crows. They really start showing up in March and then they stay all summer. There's a boulder near our house, a great big waist-high boulder. It's got a little dent in the top like a dish. I think they probably dug the boulder out when they were putting the road in all those years ago, and it's been there ever since. When Robin and I walk down the road, we like to put a, a dime or a quarter or a few new pennies in the dish. And it's for the crows. See, the crows like them. The crows are smart. You never see them do it, but they'll come down out of the treetops and grab the, the quarters and the dimes, and they'll fly back to their nests with them. It's kind of fantastic. I like the idea that Robin and I have helped to embellish nests all over Aiken County. If we knew where they were, we could climb up the tree and put our hand in and pull out the dime that we put in, in, the, in that dish back in 97 or 98. It's really fun. We do it every year. And when I read, that's kind of how I am. I'm kind of a crow. Uh, I think a lot of people read like crows. You, you look for the shiny things. Um, if I'm reading a book and something kind of glints off the page, I kind of collect them. Um, I, think, I think readers tend to do that. You sort of remember it, and, and later you, you pull it out and you, you look at it in the light. Sometimes I'll read something to Robin or just read it to myself out loud for pleasure. For example... Uh, Ratty and Mole are having this picnic. Sorry, another kid's book. A lot of shiny stuff in kid's books. You notice this? I don't know why that is. It makes me want to write one. Uh, Wind in the Willows. Um, uh, what a story. That, that book is alone among the testaments for me. I, I, I love it. 
Ratty and Mole are going to head out in the rowboat, and Ratty shows up. He's got this picnic basket. Shove that under your feet, he observed to the mole as he passed it down into the boat. Then he untied the painter and took the skulls again. What's inside it? asked the mole, wriggling with curiosity. There's cold chicken inside it, replied the rat briefly. Cold tongue, cold ham, cold beef, pickled gherkins, salad, French rolls, crest sandwiches, potted meat, ginger beer, lemonade, soda water. Oh, stop! Stop! <laughs> cried Mole in ecstasies. It's too much. Do you really think so? inquired the rat seriously. It's only what I always take on these little excursions. And the other animals are always telling me I'm a mean beast and cut it very fine. <sighs> that description of the picnic... That generosity of that description, that glittering basket. Uh, there's certain shiny things that just never get dull. You find them at the right age, and they just open the world like a scroll. The author here is Kenneth Graham. He got such a kick out of picnics that he threw in another one later in the book. Um, I'm going to read this one, too. This is Ratty again. Honestly, nobody packs a basket like Rat. He took care to include a yard of long French bread, a sausage out of which the garlic sang, some cheese which lay down and cried, and a long-necked straw-covered flask wherein lay bottled sunshine shed and garnered on far southern slopes. Thus laden, he returned with all speed and blushed for pleasure at the old seaman's commendations of his taste and judgment, as together they unpacked the basket and laid out the contents on the grass by the roadside." Uh, I'll tell you the effect this has. Um, I read this book when I was eight. Um, actually, it was read to me by a wonderful teacher who read it every day after lunch for a while. Uh, and then, of course, I got the book, and I started reading it a couple times a year. And then we had kids, and, and you know, you get to a point where you have such favorites. After a while, you know the book by heart. But even now, after all these years, and our kids are gone and grown, even when we don't read the book aloud... When October comes and it's picnic season, Robin and I don't miss a day. If the day, it doesn't matter what day of the week it is, it tends to be Sunday. Uh, but if we get a good day in October, we pack a basket and we go out to the hayfield in the back of our house and we choose a spot and we stay out there sometimes for hours. And we make it as much like a wind in the willows basket as we can. Just a huge, just pickles and olives and, you know, hopefully a basket of something, you know, really delightful changes your world. So because I think you should only write what you want to read yourself, I recommend looking for the shine. Be on the hunt for it. If you see anything shiny, you hear a shiny phrase, pick it up, grab it. Stick it in your nest, you'll find a use for it. Even if it's just a word you're in love with, like, like see kindly. I like that one right now. Or a short funny sentence or an image that makes you smile. Don't let a page stand without something really shiny on it, something that makes you happy. A month ago, I was writing a scene with an elephant in it because I really like elephants. Um, there's a lot going on in an elephant. And there was also a trombone in the scene because trombones are sort of inherently funny. Um, and, and I appreciate trombones, you know, down in the low brass wing of the family. Uh, and I was working on this scene, and all of a sudden, and this doesn't happen very often. When it does, I'm super happy. All of a sudden, I was working, and the elephant just sat down on the trombone. 
And I was riding on the boat. I was working on the boat, and I just laughed out loud. Um, and Robin's like, uh, because I'd never thought before about an elephant sitting on a trombone. <laughs> the elephant's kind of old and tired, you know, and there's a trombone, and he sits down, and the trombone just crumples. It just looks like a scribble. The elephant stands back up, and the trombone is sticking to him, you know, because it's just bent around. I, I'm sorry. I think it's really funny. Um, <laughs> I had never thought about it before, and now I can't stop. <laughs> I guess my point is that you should write what you want to read, you should compose what you want to listen to, you should paint what you want to see, you should film what you want to watch, because look, whatever, whatever you, uh, what you're meant to do is already in there. Kind of look for the coin in the rock, you know. I don't want to go on too long here, but, um, but there... There's one more thing about this work we're up to. Um, and I couldn't decide whether this fit under, under uh, persistence or gratitude or delight. Maybe it's all three. Maybe it's none of them. Um, but I did say that I was going to talk about sailing, so, um, so here we go. I think it's important to our work, and I think it's important to working for the long haul to learn to go full and by. Full and by, sailing term. Does anybody sail? Anybody? Uh, okay. Not a, not a big sailing crowd. Uh, I'll, I'll, uh, I'll explain this quickly. A sailboat can go into the wind. It can go in the direction of the wind. But it has to go at an angle. You know, if the wind is coming from the north, uh, you can get there, but you've got to tack. You've got to go boop, 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 like that against the wind. But you've got to be careful about it. If you aim too close to the wind, you'll just sit there and the sails will flap, the boat won't know which way to go, it'll sit there and start to drift backwards. If you don't go close enough to the wind, you'll never get where you're going to go. So it's a matter of sailing full and by. That is when, let me talk about its opposite first, then it'll be easier to understand. There are two ways to go into the wind on a sailboat. One, three. <laughs> there are three ways. One is you start the engine. But the two legitimate ways, um, there's, there's one called pinching up. This is just what it sounds like. You pull the, the sail as close to the center line of the boat as you can, and then you just ease up, sneak up next to the wind as close as you can, so that if, you know, if it's north wind, you're going, let's say, north-northeast. You're just a little bit off. And you can do it. You can do it. And you can even take some pride in it. I know a lot of sailors who are talking all the time about how close to the wind their boats can sail. It's called pinching up. The problem is, it's not much fun. Um, it's, you're always on the edge of a stall. You're always on the edge of everything just uh, going crazy on you. You're not going very fast, and it's really tense. If you want a tense crew and sweaty hands, spend an afternoon pinching up. The other way is to back off and go full and by, and that's when you say, what am I doing this for? This is not a sustainable thing. And you back off maybe five degrees off the wind, so you're going northeast, or even east-northeast. And you let the sail get full, and then this miracle happens. What happens is you're still going in the right direction, but all of a sudden you're going fast, and everything changes. The boat makes a different noise through the water. Suddenly the motion is sweet and friendly. It's not choppy anymore. Suddenly you're just going... 
the boat falls into a rhythm. She puts her shoulder down. We've got a, a boat on Lake Superior. She loves sailing full and by. Boats are living things. Boats are like a dog or a horse. They have a hundred ways to tell you when they're happy and when they're not happy. Our boat prefers full and by. You go full and by, you speed up, the boat remembers an old song and it starts to hum it. You can hear a song in the rigging. Um, there's a rhythm. It's magic. Before you know it, you're where you wanted to be. It's pretty fantastic. Now, I really hesitate to use that as a metaphor for the writing process because, as we all know, it can be incredibly difficult to write something good. It can be really hard. But for the long haul, the way to do it, I think, is to relax a little bit, let the sails fill, and then the vessel does what she was meant to do all along. I think that is a way to approach art. I think it is a way to approach whatever the creative thing is that we do. And if we're able to do that, then it feels to me like reasonable worship. It feels like that light yoke we've all heard so much about. The Hutchmood Podcast is brought to you by the Rabbit Room Podcast Network. Special thanks to Andrew Osinga for the use of his song Perihelion One from his amazing record, Leonard the Lonely Astronaut.